Uh, turn, please, tonight to Psalm 23. <clears throat> Psalm 23. Let's go ahead and stand, please. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful song, and I pray that it would that we would be aware that this is the experience of all God's people. And so help us to that end tonight, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may of course be seated. <clears throat> well, certainly one of the most beautiful and treasured portions of scripture to be found anywhere in the Bible and as we've already sung it is the source of a number of hymns and songs that the church sings it contains no controversy there there's nothing that we're going to scratch our head over in the text Nothing that we have to sort through. There are no difficult doctrines found in the 23rd Psalm. There are no commands to obey. There are no criticisms offered. There are no behaviors to be avoided. It is simply a testimony. That's what it is. It is a testimony. It is the experience of David. And part of the beauty and part of the meaning to God's people is that when we read it, whether we're consciously thinking about that or not, we are aware of it. This is not a man who is writing about God at a distance as if he were writing a term paper on deity. This is a man writing out of the experiences of Of his life. It is the testimony of his absolute declaration of confidence. And as short as it is in the English, it's about half as long in the Hebrew. It is a very brief testimony. The first verse in the Hebrew, and I don't want to spend a lot of time dealing with structural matters, but the first verse in the Hebrew contains only six words. Song David, that's the heading. Song David, Jehovah's Shepherd, 
And in the Hebrew, the word shepherd is the verb. This is what God is doing. This is not a noun. It is the verb. It is the activity. God is the one doing the shepherding. So song David, Jehovah's shepherd, not want. And want is a verb. I will not lack anything. Those whom God shepherds have no real lack, no real deficiency. I do want to point this out, and we will at some point in time return to this, but Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are a bit of a trilogy. Um, Psalm 22 explains to us that Jesus is our Savior. And Psalm 24 explains to us that Jesus is our Sovereign. And in Psalm 23, of course, Jesus is our shepherd. As far as I can tell, this is the first time in the Bible, and we have lived through Adam and Eve, and we have lived through Cain and Abel, and we have lived through Noah, and we have lived through Abraham, and we have lived through Moses. But this is the first time but not the last that God is called a shepherd. In Isaiah 40, the father shall feed his flock. That's shepherd. That's what shepherds do. They take their flocks to pasture and they protect the flock. In Jeremiah 31, God likens himself to a shepherd who will gather his flock, Israel, and bring them back into the land. And of course, probably the most famous passage is John chapter 10, where Jesus proclaims that he is the good shepherd. But again, within the framework of the timeline of the Bible, to the best that I am able to discern, It is at this moment in the reign of David, somewhere around 900 or 1000 BC, that God first identifies himself in this way, the shepherd of his people. God will call David his shepherd. 1 Chronicles 11.2, Psalm 78.70-72. God will point out that David has shepherded his people, but here... God shepherds his people. So that is the perspective that I wish to bring. The Lord is not my shepherd in the noun sense of the word. The Lord is my shepherd in the verb sense of the word. He is shepherding me. All of God's people have this as their confidence. So how does David identify this activity? In what way is God shepherding us. And let me suggest to you that we can divide the psalm into three main thoughts. They do not fall equally, each getting two verses, but they do fall into, I think, three main thoughts. God shepherds us, first of all, by providing for us. This is the content of verses 2 through 4. The Lord shepherds us by providing for us. And again, within the trilogy, folks, Psalm 22 has explained his provision of salvation, and 
Psalm 24 refers back to his gracious provision of salvation. This is all of the other provision. This is the provision that we get as being his people that is the focus of Psalm number 22. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me besides the still waters. He gives us genuine rest. It is, of course, what we would call a very pastoral scene, a very tranquil, calm scene. There's no peril. Nobody is frightened. Everybody is at ease, laying down in green pastures, resting beside the still waters. And again, folks, if we just think about the imagery of a sheep, what other needs does a sheep have? Sheep are not people. They don't really need to be entertained. They just need to be fed, and they need to be protected. They need to be sheltered. And Having done that, sheep then are more than capable of doing what they have been built and created and designed to do. And so God provides these things and God provides the place for those things. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not want. Because he is a good shepherd who is providing for me. He is giving me rest and peace. He restores me. When David says he restoreth my soul, he is most likely thinking about what we would consider to be the whole man. Not just that spiritual part of me, but the entirety of who we are. And the idea of restoration has is that of kind of like returning to original condition. So that... I put it this way in my notes deliberately to be very careful as I say it. That God is really presenting himself not as the possibility but as the real provider of our emotional well-being. He is our genuine caregiver. He takes care of us physically. He takes care of us emotionally. He takes care of us spiritually. He is our shepherd. We will not lack anything. Nothing that we genuinely need. And he leads us in verse number three in the paths of righteousness for the sake of his name, if I could do that to the King James. For the sake of his name, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. You know, folks, it is only fitting and proper and appropriate that our shepherd ensure that we are pleasing to him. This is the great activity of the shepherd. This is to take a far ahead picture and a big bird's eye picture of the New Testament epistles. This is the point of writing all of these instructions to us. The New Testament is clear. So that we are a people who are pleasing to our shepherd. Our shepherd is acting on our behalf. There is some obligation, folks, for us to act on his to do those things that are pleasing to him. He leads us for the sake of his name. And we get, again, some idea of that, folks. If you just recall some of what we've been talking about, the book of Titus is so rich on it that we're not ever allowed to do anything that is going to mar or defile or taint God's great name. 
or his doctrine. Don't, don't let the doctrine be spoken evil of. He leads us in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. <clears throat> but sometimes, folks, the path of righteousness leads through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't get to come to Psalm 23, for instance, and argue that because we have Psalm 23, we no longer need Psalm 40. That there are no longer miry pits and there are no longer dangers and perils. But the Good Shepherd is leading us in paths of righteousness that sometimes walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And David had what we would call several near-death experiences in the course of his life. Saul tried to kill him. Saul wanted to kill him. Saul plotted to kill him. Saul issued orders for his death, kill him. If you see David, kill him. And so David knows what it is to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But he also knows, right? He also knows the rest of the verse. Why is he not afraid? Interesting because David is, by all biblical accounts, a valiant warrior. He knows how to use weapons. He knows what it is to be in combat. He has experience in crisis situations. He knows what it is to have a cool head. He knows what it is to be under physical attack. But he doesn't say, I'm not afraid because I have a lot of experience at this. He is not afraid because God is with him. He is the shepherd, the good shepherd. And thy rod and thy staff, right, the instruments of a shepherd are used for his benefit. The Lord knows how to use the tools of the trade to keep his people safe, even in dangerous places. And again, folks, this is David writing out of his experience. Not not writing a term paper. Not writing a book report. but a man giving testimony as to the Lord's activity in his life. You are my shepherd, I shall not want, because you provide for me. Secondly, how does God shepherd his people? He prefers them. He is preferential to us. Verses 5 and 6. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. We will stop there. And we can just take our imaginations, folks, and put them to work here. David had real enemies. And it wasn't just King Saul that was his enemy. It was the entire house of Saul. It was Saul's entire family, with the exception of Jonathan, who was against him. They were real enemies. 
When they looked at David, they saw a man who had taken the throne away from their family. The Philistines were his enemies. The Ammonites were his enemies. The Moabites were his enemies. David had real enemies. So just get the scene, right? David is, of course, speaking poetically. You're going to be hard-pressed to read through the biblical narratives and find this scenario specifically. David is speaking poetically, describing the activity of God. But just imagine, take your imagination and imagine, here is King David, surrounded by all these people, surrounded by the household of Saul, who are angry with him and would like to see him dead and refuse at times to follow him. And when Absalom turns against him, right, and Shimei comes out and curses him, where's Shimei from? He's from the house of Saul. And here are the Moabites. Here's here's Goliath and his descendants. There's the picture. Surrounded by enemies. And here comes the Lord. Setting a table. Just as Jesus would someday set the table at the Lord's Supper, here is the Lord setting the table. Preferential treatment to David, anointing him with oil, which is indicative of his acceptance and of his status and of his respect. This is what people did to Jesus, and this is why they did it. They anointed him with oil. It was a demonstration of respect of acceptance, of identification. And therefore, his cup overflows, verse number 5. Now, folks, here's the biblical truth, and I realize that God's people do not always feel like this is true. But it is absolutely biblically true. God prefers his people over other people. There's just no... I mean, I just don't think there's anything wrong in putting it that way. Exodus 19.5, for instance, you can turn to it if you want. I'm just going to read to you a couple of Old Testament verses and one from the New Testament. Exodus 19.5, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. All people belong to me. All the Asians and all the North Americans and all the South Americans and all the Africans and all the Europeans, they all belong to me. But if you will keep my covenant, you will be special. That's the idea of peculiar. Not weird, special. Malachi 3.17, They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. My peculiar ones, my special ones, they will be mine. Out of all the people in the earth, When I assemble those that are precious to me, that's who they will be. I prefer them. Peter echoes this, 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, special, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is biblically true, folks. God prefers the company of his people. 
God is preferential to us. Now again, sometimes when we're really in the heat of the moment and we're really stretched to the limit and we're really terrified of what might happen, we don't think of it that way, but God always thinks of it that way. Prefer you to anybody else. Now here's where we don't want to go with that, right? We want to come to understand that we are truly precious to the Lord because we belong to Him. The line we're never allowed to cross is that somehow we deserve this or are more deserving of it than other people are. That is a place that the Bible will never let us go. In almost every, in all of the branches of our military and in almost law enforcement agency, there are elite units. People who are chosen because of their unique abilities or their special skills or their ability to demonstrate tolerating more abuse than other people are willing to tolerate. But that is not true of us, folks. We're, we're not among the best. And in fact, Paul's pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 2 that God has probably chosen us for the exact opposite reason. That we were not probably the brightest of the bunch, the best of the bunch, the, certainly not among the power, power and sh- movers and shakers of the world. Not many of those. So we are precious to the Lord. And this is how the Lord shepherds us by preferring us in the way that he treats us. And I would just remind you folks that the Lord chastens those that he loves. And we need to always keep in mind that the things that we are experiencing in our lives, unpleasant though they might be, are for true believers instructive in nature, not punitive in nature. The Lord is chastening his people for their own good, for his ultimate glory. This is not something that is happening to unbelieving people. They have no ability to see their sufferings in any kind of spiritual terms or with any spiritual depth or dimension, but we do. And this is because the Lord is our shepherd. He leads us in paths of righteousness, though they might include the valley of the shadow of death, but he always prefers us. He prepares for us a table in the presence of our enemies. And then finally, folks, finally, which, oh, by the way, and because God prefers us, we have this assurance, goodness and mercy will follow all the days of our lives. And and I just want to point out that word there that we make sure that we understand it correctly. David does not mean that I will always be one step ahead of goodness, That, that the goodness of the Lord is just right behind me. And, and I'm not experiencing it now because it's, it's a step behind. That's not what he means. What he means is that the mercy and goodness will always be in pursuit of us. God is always working in mercy for the good of his people. Always. He's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And David is aware of this. He provides for us. He prefers us. And then finally at the end of verse number 6, he will promote us. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
Now this is, I think, particularly fascinating in light of the fact that David really didn't know a lot of New Testament theology. But folks, this is, right? Psalm 23, 6, when David writes it, he is writing poetically. He's writing out of a rich heart. But what he is also doing is predicting the future. This is exactly, right, what awaits us in Revelation 21 and 22. Where are we going to spend eternity? In the Lord's house. In the Lord's house. In the Lord's presence. This is what God has for us. This is the final resting place of God's people in his house forever in perpetuity. The Lord is our shepherd. Now, just a couple of things again in closing. A reminder, this fits within the trilogy of these psalms. Psalm 22, Jesus, our crucified Savior. Psalm 24, Jesus, our returning sovereign. Psalm 23, Jesus, our good shepherd. Our good, good shepherd. The pastor in Hebrews calls him the great shepherd of the sheep. So this is what God has for his people. This is what should be at our in our own individual experiences. We should be able to look at the experiences that we have lived, which are not, of course, going to be David's, but they're going to have the same sentiments to them. There are going to be dark days and bright days. And there should be in us the ongoing knowledge that the Lord is our good shepherd, that it is an activity he has undertaken and thankful to him for it. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that we would be grateful to you for your shepherding of our lives. You are the great shepherd of your sheep, providing for us, preferring us, and ultimately promoting us to be in your presence forever. May we be always grateful. May we be always mindful of the great blessing that is ours to know you and to be yours. And I pray this for us. In Jesus' name, amen.